So good morning, Wellspring family and friends, those of you who are here in person, those of you who are online. Um, I'm actually starting today's message with my first worst memory. So it's not very funny. Actually, there's, uh, I, I sent a copy of this message to Dan, uh, Pastor Dan yesterday, and I was like, can you look it over? There's a couple things I had questions about. And he's like, oh, you know, you finished early. You have time for some humor. And I'm like, there's no, there's gonna be no humor in this one. So um, thanks to Pastor Dan for reading this ahead of time and for you all for coming with me into my first worst memory. And I was, uh, I, was, I was very little at the time. I hadn't quite turned four years old yet. And someone had given my parents a flying squirrel. Um, we don't have a picture of it, so I'm going to go ahead and just show you a picture that I found online. Here is a flying squirrel. Uh, we were in the jungles of Palawan and where we lived. And my family, we lived right on the edge of this one mountain, which is part of the... Um, Montalingahan mountain range. And so we would share antibiotics and bandages and ointments with uh, people who lived up in the mountains with members of the tribes there who lived on the mountain as well as with you know neighbors who lived in the surrounding jungle area. And so there was a lot of trading back and forth and so we would trade what we had and people would uh, bring us orchids and animals and sometimes wild boar or eggs they had found with us. So there was a lot of um, a lot of giving in that culture. So someone gave us a squirrel and I don't know why we kept the squirrel. Perhaps it was someone we knew, but we couldn't get rid of the squirrel, and so it kind of became my pet. But flying squirrels, it was not tame, and it was not meant to be a pet. They're meant to fly free, um, soar from, from tree to tree. They're meant to, to not be stuck in a cage. And so one day, I think I knew that, so I must have felt a little bad. I was, I was feeding this little squirrel, and I decided to take him out of the cage because he didn't look very happy. And so I took him out, and he... Um, kind of got away from me, and I'm a little worried because we're on the outside lanai, I don't want him to get lost. And so he goes under this table area, and it was like a table with one of those like low pedestals, like the, the frame on the bottom, I could just barely squeak my little fingers under, and I squeaked my hands under, and I grabbed hold of the tail, and I held on tight, and Mr. Squirrel streaked on through on the other side, tailless, looking like the rodent he was. <laughs> And it was this terrible, terrible feeling of, I've done something awful that I didn't mean to do, but I'm holding on to this squirrel tail, and I don't know where the squirrel is. And I, I run in the house, and I'm just bawling. I'm crying so hard. I'm like, Mom! <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Squirrel's tail, and she's like, oh, honey, and this is where, you know, you know, it might not have been truthful, but it was very kind. She goes, oh, honey, they grow back. <laughs> Thank you, Mom, for saying that. You helped me live with myself until the age I was finally old enough to Google it and discover that they don't grow back. <laughs> this terrible feeling, this action I did had these consequences that I didn't you know, even realize that were gonna happen, but that happened. Mr. Swirl kept running, I held on tight. My first worst memory told me that actions have consequences regardless of our intent. Sometimes seemingly irreversible consequences. Now, if you're just joining us today, we are going through the book of Jonah. And two weeks ago, um, in chapter one, we were following Jonah's journey as he resisted God's call to go um, to this violent city of Nineveh and tell them to change their ways. And instead, he, he runs from the presence of God. He hops on an escape boat. Uh, he heads straight into a storm where he gets thrown overboard and then winds up straight into the gut of a large fish. It's basically, you know, from worse to worse to worse. And there he finds he can't run from God or from his feelings about the Ninevite people. 
So sort of a whale of a tale, right? Because somehow he survives in our story. He survives this, this, um, this catastrophic event. Uh, so oftentimes people think that, you know, that event in Jonah is, is, is the, real, the real hard pill to swallow. But I would say the hardest chapter of Jonah, the hardest thing for me to really come to grips with in this story is what happens here in chapter 3. He's prayed throughout chapter 2. We saw Jonah at the crossroads last week. We, we prayed the prayer with the Lakota people of the four, the four, um, the crossroads, north, south, west, east. Um, he's been to the crossroads, and now here he is, given a second chance to do the very, very hard thing. He's barfed up on the beach, Nineveh is shimmering in the distance, and he gets a second chance to do what God asked him to do. And this is where we get to what I think is really the most unbelievable part of this story. So are you with me? We're going to go ahead and we're going to read through Jonah 3 together. It's just 10 verses. Uh, if you want to follow along in your, in your Bible or Bible app, I'll also have it up on the screen. Or if you have a bulletin, it should be there as well. So then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king in Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger, so we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now the city of Nineveh, like many cities before it and after it, was a thriving part of an empire. It's a part of the Assyrian Empire. This was an empire that kept itself going, like all empires do, through its war machine. They made themselves rich and powerful through taking wealth from the countries they conquered, they raised cities to the ground, they, they took female and male slaves, they killed civilians. This Assyrian Empire is the same one that invaded Jonah's homeland and wiped out the entire northern kingdom. They obliterated 10 out of the 12 original tribes of Israel. And they went down and they seized Jerusalem, and those they didn't kill, they took as captives. These are that people. This is that city. And this city had been doing this for a very long time. They had long oppressed and warred against others. So it's inevitable. It's a natural law of the universe that the same thing happened to them, right? Like all empires before them and after them were destined to crumble from the weight of the violent things they had done. Simple actions and consequences. Except in our story, in Jonah 3, this doesn't happen. Something miraculous happens. Jonah walks part of the way through the city on foot, and he gives the world's shortest sermon. It's only five words in Hebrew. I think it's like, what, seven words in English or something? Forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's like five words in Hebrew. So he, he, he might not have spent a lot of time on this message. 
And the miracle happened anyway, so I'm a little jealous. I'm like, man, five, five words. He walks partway through the city, giving the world's shortest sermon, and the miracle happens. Everyone believes God. From, from the, the least person to the, to the greatest person there, from the person with the least amount of power to the most amount of power, everybody repents. Their dictator or their king even puts on mourning clothes, tells everybody to put on mourning clothes and call urgently on the God of Israel, tells them to confess, right? They state that they, they have been violent, their evil ways, right? They, he, gives, he gives words to what they've done. It's frankly unbelievable. It's as if, like Pastor Dan mentioned two weeks ago, it's as if God called on a rabbi to go preach to the city of Berlin in 1940. And Hitler, his cronies, everyone in the city realizes their evil actions and their violent ways, believes God, and repents. So they stop World War II, right? They, they throw, we were wrong parties and toss, we were wrong leaflets from their tanks, which immediately go to liberate everyone in their death camps as they implement steps to restore and to rectify feels really unbelievable, doesn't it? Or more recently, it's as if a bishop in the Orthodox Church of Ukraine preaches their way through Moscow, gets to the Kremlin, and Putin repents and says, your God has shown me that I'm wrong. I'm sorry for attacking your country. Immediately stops the bloodshed, assists needy civilians back to their homes, gives billions of his dollars away to, to, to rebuild the cities, to house the unhoused, to educate children, and steps back to allow free and fair elections. Doesn't that feel unbelievable? Right, we might look at the story of Jonah and think that the strangest thing about it is the fish, but I think the strangest thing about it happens here when an entire city of people change their mind, change their ways, and repent. What I find most miraculous about this story is that the natural cause of actions and consequences here is subverted as the city is given not just the chance, but the actual reality of positive change. Right? The moral laws of the universe are suspended by God's merciful kindness. A miracle takes place, a miracle of positive change. In my early 20s, one of my friends from church, one of my good friends from church, she was also a teenage runaway. She had been through a lot of trauma in her life. And after a brief stint in prison where we wrote each other, she went to residential rehab right here on island. And I got to visit her. They would, let, um, they would have visiting hours during the week and you'd have to watch some, some video and then they'd let you go and spend time with your friend. And during that time, she reconnected with her child and began to turn the whole course of her life around. And I got to be the maid of honor at her wedding a couple years later to a wonderful man and got to see her family grow one child at a time. It's been almost 15 years now and the miracle of positive change continues in her life. It hasn't been easy, right? She's faced lots of internal and external pressures, but her life went a totally different way than you might have predicted because of the miracle of positive change. And friends, this miracle of positive change, it takes place around us every single day. It happens when a couple decides to go against the drift of isolation and misunderstanding in their marriage, goes to counseling, starts talking about the hard and deep things. The miracle of positive change begins. The miracle of positive change happens when you begin to think that you have something to contribute. You are not too old, too tired. You are not too spent to lead or to serve or to invest in community. 
the miracle of positive change continues. The miracle of positive change grows when we, can dis- when we start deconstructing some of the painful and unhealthy wrong things of the faith that we were raised in, and we discover, rediscover the love, power, and presence of Jesus who has always reached out to us. We reorient our life and our faith. We choose to build around that. That's a miracle of positive change in a life that could have disintegrated into cynicism or selfishness or bitterness. The miracle of positive change happens every day. It happens when someone decides to follow Jesus for the first time, to fully commit who they are, their decisions, their will, their way to to following Jesus, to being a disciple. Miracle of positive change occurs. Miracle of positive change takes place when you remain open to how God might want you to use your time, spend your resources, invest your energy. This miracle of positive change, of transformation, has always been God's plan ever since the day humanity took a wrong turn, millennia upon millennia ago. Let's go ahead and let's look at Jonah's message, a much shorter one than mine for the day, I gotta say. This right here, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is in verse four. Some of your translations, it might say destroyed. And I can imagine that that's kind of what Jonah was hoping would happen, because next week we get to my very favorite chapter in the entire book, chapter four. Oh, it's my favorite. Actually, when I was trying to spend some time on this message for today, I kept compiling stuff for the next week, the fourth. I'm like, that's next week. Anyway, I will have to stop, because otherwise I'll start talking about Jonah four. But here we are, Jonah three. (laughs) 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He was hoping that the other meaning of that word, destroyed, would take place. But friends, there's yet another meaning to that word in the Hebrew, hafak, hafak. The other meaning to that word is transformation. The other meaning of that word is positive change. 40 days in Nineveh will be transformed. That's what happened. God didn't want Nineveh to buckle under the weight of its own pain and violence because God's goal is for transformation. A transformed society, transformed peoples, transformed cities, a transformed prophet. God's heart is always for good. Jonah's prophecy came true. 40 days in Nineveh was transformed. What about us? Here we are in the 40 days of Lent. We're in our own 40 days. We're leading up to the cross and beyond it to the empty grave. To us, Nineveh can feel so far away, just another ancient Near East city. It can feel so far away in terms of history, but also in terms of guilt. We're not that bad. Sure, the cities and countries we've lived in, because we come from all around the world, sure, the countries we've lived in have funded and staffed and waged wars, but all of them, or at least most of them, are for good reasons. And sure, sometimes our country has committed dubious ethical acts in secret CIA prisons and holding cells abroad, and sure, sometimes we have tortured suspected combatants. Yes, we have provided weapons to all sorts of groups in the Middle East and beyond, some of them who then turned against us. Yes. Yeah, we've claimed territory to be our own, and we have poisoned water with leaking fuel that we've denied as long as we could, but that's not all of who we are. 
Friends, even if we think we're the heroes of the story, we are the villains to somebody else. And at some point in time, the God who created this world, a God beyond borders, who harbors no prejudice, who rectifies wrongs, will come to rectify the wrongs we, our cities, and our country have done too. We are in need of positive change. As peoples who live here now, we are in need of transformation. What I find so interesting about this story is like, even the animals got in on the repentance actions. The animals hadn't done anything wrong. They didn't even know what was going on. What about the little children? What about, what about the women who had never once held an instrument of warfare? What about the slaves that the city of Nineveh had brought in? Everybody, scripture tells us, from greatest to least, put on mourning clothes. Everybody got in on repentance actions, even the people who themselves had done nothing wrong. They all repented of what their city had done together, even if they hadn't been the ones to actually do the evil, because they understood that somehow they were all interconnected, that what had benefited one had kind of trickled down to benefit them all, and that they were part of the smog of wrongdoing. They were connected to it, even if they didn't want to be. And friends, if we are going to receive the miracle of God's good transformation, God's good change in our day and age, as a city, as a country, as individual people, away from the, the harm that we've done to our souls, to the environment, to each other, if we're going to miraculously escape reaping what we've sown, we are going to need to opt in to God's transformation invitation. And what I love about this passage of scripture is that there is this transformation invitation to each person in the city, to the city of a whole. It's to individuals and it's to the large group. And I think that we can look at this passage of scripture and I'm just gonna look, I'm gonna pull out three things really quickly of ways we can opt into God's transformation invitation. There's actually a whole bunch of them in the text. If you spent any time in it, spend any time in it this week, I'm sure you can write down your own list. So I'm just going to list these three. If you don't have time to write them down, feel free to take a picture. Um, I think we'll, have them, uh, think we'll have them written down somewhere online. The first one is recognize, recognize the chance you have in front of you. To opt into God's transformation invitation, recognize the chance you have right in front of you. Right? Our chapter opens and Jonah is given a second chance. The word of the Lord comes to him a second time. And he takes this chance. Right? He wasn't doing any running anymore. None of us right there, and he's going to go, even if he's going to preach the world's shortest sermon. He's still going to go. Friends, you and I, we have opportunities in front of us. It might be our second or our third or our fourth chance. It might be our fifth or sixth invitation from God, or maybe we've lost count. But there is an opportunity in front of us. As Canadian poet Rupi Kaur says, if you haven't stood with the oppressed, there is still time. If you haven't shared the good news or embodied the good news, there is still time. Every day is a new chance, a new opportunity to love the world like God loves the world. Maybe God is inviting you to deepening community, for you to commit to prioritizing the growth of your soul with others at church or with trusted friends. There is still time. You have a second chance, or a third or fourth chance, or one we won't even count. You have an opportunity right now. Second thing you can do to opt into God's transformation invitation is to assess your current trajectory. Figure out where you are. Assess your current trajectory and call urgently on God. This is what they did in verse 8. Right? Jonah says, you're going to be overthrown slash destroyed slash transformed. 
The people of Nineveh, they accepted that as their trajectory. Yes, that is what's going to happen to us. And they called on God for help. Where are you going? What is your trajectory financially, socially, spiritually? Are you living living into deepening health, deepening spiritual and emotional health? As I look back over the last couple years of COVID, I realize there's some trajectories that I'm on that I need to change. One of them is the trajectory of overwork. I think when COVID first hit, we were just sort of like frantically trying to get everybody connected and find ways we could still reach all of our friends at home and still, you know, be Christ's hands and feet. And what are we going to do? And oh my goodness, it was just work, 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 work. And really good work, 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 work. But that became my new coping mechanism. I started to feel better the more I worked. Oh, things will be okay if I just work harder. I don't think I'm the only one there, but each one of us, right, we have our own coping mechanisms for when catastrophic things happen. And this past couple years has been pretty catastrophic. So where are we now? Taking time to assess, what trajectory am I on? Am I connecting with the people that are important to me? Am I spending time with God? What, where am I going? And friends, this isn't, doesn't have to be something scary. Sometimes they think about, oh, assess the trajectory I'm on. Oh, that sounds like really, sounds really, really dark. And yet, um, it doesn't have to be. If we ask ourselves, where are we going? Um, If nothing changes in your life, where are you headed? It doesn't have to be scary because we know that God's love reaches to the deepest, darkest place and back, right? We affirm that Jesus descended into hell in our statements of belief and as Holy Scripture says in 1 Peter. So I'm not asking you to assess your trajectory so you feel guilty or you feel shame or you feel fear. I'm asking for you to take a realistic assessment of where you're at because God intends the abundant life for you. God intends for you to live the abundant life. What trajectory are you on? Are you headed to your heart's true home in God? If not, what needs to change? And call on God to help because change is hard. What about our city or our country? Can we take time to assess our current trajectory and call on God? Asking God for help isn't a punishment. It's not because we're afraid God will punish us if we don't. It's because we know God's good intent for us and we want to live into that. And lastly, to opt into God's transformation invitation, take intentional steps to turn to God. Take intentional steps to turn to God. In our text for today, the people of Nineveh, they took intentional steps to turn to God. They named what they were complicit in and then they they publicly mourned They said, we're all going to get in on this repentance action. And then they actually changed their ways. Scripture says they changed their ways. And so that's really the textbook definition of confession and repentance. Naming what has gone wrong and taking steps to turn around. That's what repentance means. It simply means to turn. So for each one of us, taking steps to intentionally turn to God means by definition, we will probably need to turn from something else. Because each one of us have things that we go to in stress, things that we turn to, things that are, become idols for us, even sometimes good things. So here we have an opportunity once again to turn from whatever it is that we've been turning to and turn to God. What do you need to turn from today? For some of us, it might be cynicism or bitterness, maybe arrogance or apathy, selfishness. Maybe it means turning from blaming others to owning your story. Maybe it means turning from, from a kind of not caring to kind of owning your pain. 
and leaning into your story with God. Maybe it involves turning from isolation to community, from trying to go it alone to asking others for help. If you were to take an intentional step this week, what would it look like? Each week um, in our series here in Jonah, we've been naming a specific spiritual practice that our fathers and mothers of the faith and those in scripture have practiced that we can continue to practice now. And um, last week we went ahead and we were uh, looking at the prayer of the crossroads as well as asking God, uh, where, where do we go when we say, um, in all the different areas of our life. And there was this really great chart for north and south and east and west and what that represented. That was really cool. It's a wonderful spiritual exercise. But our exercise for this week is not so fun. It's the exercise of confession. Oh, which is the first aspect of repentance. And there's a wonderful handout, um, once again, from Adele Calhoun's book on spiritual disciplines. Uh, There's a wonderful handout that we have um, that many of you received. And if not, um, when you head home today, make sure you pick it up. And there's a whole bunch of suggestions for ways you can practice confession. And some of them, you know, might not be for you. You know, we don't have to do all of them. And some of them might not feel very safe. I think one of them is actually having, like, an accountability group where you share with other people. Some of you have been in places like that, and it was really harmful, where you feel like people used what you shared against you. So as you go through the list, feel free to disregard what isn't helpful, but feel free to pick up one, one, one practice that this week you're like, you know what, I will practice this form of confession. I, I, I will say this. I will begin the process of turning, even if I don't have to turn very far, turning to God. And it's okay if you, if you have some inner resistance to this idea, right? I think whenever we, we apologize publicly as a country for something we've done or did, um, there's always resistance, right? Because there's always resistance to this idea of, of what we've done wrong. And yet in scripture, it's always tied to transformation. It's always tied to positive change. So confession does not come naturally for most of us, including me, but it's deeply biblical. So um, feel free to grab one of those uh, handouts on your way out. And if you're listening online, if you go to wellspringhawaii.org and you click on worship, um, there'll be a place where you can download message notes from today. And included in that is the handout here on confession. What do you need to turn from today? What do you need to name In the Jewish tradition, the book of Jonah is read every year on their most holy day, Yom Kippur. It's a day of atonement. The day of atonement is a day of repentance. It's a day that people go to the temple. Maybe they don't, maybe they don't go to the temple very often during, during the months, but this is the day that you go to church. I mean, I think as Christians, we have the day in our, in our own tradition. It's usually like maybe Easter or maybe Christmas. The day that you go, you might not go during the year, but you go then. And the day of atonement, that's the day that everybody shows up. The temples are filled. It's a day that actually is a whole day spent in repentance. It's a day spent in naming what has gone wrong and naming the individual things that you're confessing to God. God, um, as you invite God to give you the gift of another year and give you the gift of forgiveness. And late in the day, the book of Jonah is read, like the whole thing. And I'm not sure, but I think even some traditions, you're standing while you read it. I mean, you can imagine after a while, you're going to get t- tired, feel a little bit like Jonah. I'm done already. <laughs> but as they read this book, they're reminded of God's infinite mercy infinite mercy to forgive anyone and anything, infinite mercy to embrace even a city like Nineveh. How much more will God forgive you and me? 
and us and them. And we, in our church year as Christians, we have also built in, we don't have a day of atonement, but we've built in this 40 days of Lent, these days leading up to Holy Week, to, to the reminder of Jesus' death, and then Holy Saturday, this, this silence, this darkness, and then Sunday, the rising. We have our own 40 days built in, and it's because we know that we need to turn. We know that during the year, our hearts go every which way. We know that we have inner resistance to the idea of confessing. And so every year, our fathers and mothers of the faith built this into the church season, saying, this is a time for you to reflect and say, where do I need to turn? So in case during the year, you kind of like, you know, move a little away, in Lent is when we can move toward God, toward each other, towards our true selves. In just a minute, we're going to be taking communion together. We're going to be here at the table that Jesus spreads for us. We're going to be remembering the night that Jesus was betrayed and out of love was willing to share the riches of God's life, God's mercy with anyone who would come, including the person who would betray him. So we come to the table, don't be afraid to name where you need to turn. Don't be afraid to assess where you are, to take this chance in front of you. It doesn't have to be a scary thing. You know, in our passage for today, do you know even God repents? Yes, God repents. There's this, there's this word in the Hebrew, right? Everybody's doing all this repenting, and in verse 10, God relents from the disaster that God had threatened. That word is also the same word, repent, used everywhere else as repent, which means if God can do it, so can we. If God can change God's mind and turn to be merciful, then why can't we? If God can name and say, yeah, maybe I'm not gonna do that after all, so can we. And what I love about this is that God invites us to do and go where God is willing to do and go. God is willing to go anywhere, do anything to bring us back. So we don't have to be afraid when we come to the table. If there's something we need to turn from, God has turned to towards God's infinite mercy, towards God's infinite love. Actually, throughout the Old Testament, you'll see all these times, all these places, where God seems to change God's mind. There's this wonderful book out there. It's called God Behaving Badly. It's a wonderful look at specific parts of the Old Testament by this one um, uh, um, Old Testament scholar. I think he's a Hebrew scholar. It's an intervarsity book. Um, I can't remember the name of who wrote it, but it's called God Behaving Badly. And he goes through all these places in the Old Testament where it looks like God changes God's mind. Just like, why does God change God's mind? Is that just like people writing or how is that? And he says it much better than I do. I invite you to go read the book sometime. It's very readable and it's fun. And we actually give a copy to our youth when they graduate from high school. We're like, here, God behaving badly. <laughs> we haven't had any complaints yet. We've been giving away for several years. Um, but that what, what the author says is that God always, when God looks at God changes God's mind, it's always to be more merciful. It's always to be more kind, more loving. And God says, you know what? There are actions and there are consequences and you can live them out. But you know what? I can change that. I can change the trajectory you're on. I can change everything about you and how you've been. And your, your story, it feels like you can't change that, but I can change what's ahead of you. And I can make it move backward in time to serve my good purposes. So God can change God's mind to be even more kind, even more merciful, according to God's true nature, God's identity as the one who is so merciful, the creator of all, who wants to give us another chance, who wants us to live healthily and with love.
So here we are, friends. We're at the table. As Pastor Dan comes up to, to, to speak the words of um, the, the table for us and invite us to take communion, um, just want to invite you that if, if, if you're here today and you're assessing where you're at and you don't really like it, to be honest with God. If you're here today and maybe there's a mountain in front of you, maybe things are really hard, you're like, I, I can't do repentance on top of this. Then come to the table knowing God will feed you. God will give you everything you need. As we opt into God's transformation together, God's transformation invitation together, I invite you to read this prayer of confession with me. If you're online, you can go ahead and read it. We'll have it, in the, um, we'll have it up on the slide. And this is adapted from the Book of Common Prayer. So thousands, if actually millions of Christians have prayed this prayer before us. And I invite you to join me in this prayer of confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that me we might reflect the image of the one we profess to follow in thought, word, and deed, and discovering our true selves, draw others into that light. Amen. Amen.